You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Mama, mama, can't you see what the army's done to me? Mama, mama, can you see what the army's done to me? I used to wear designer jeans. Now I'm wearing these army greens. I used to wear designer jeans. Now I'm wearing these army greens. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I used to drive a Cadillac. Now I'm humping it on my back. I used to drive a Cadillac. Now I'm humping it on my back. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. Outstanding. I'm going to cut it off right there because I got somebody who knows me from uh, way back when. And uh, if I keep going, I know he's going to probably lock my heels. But um, America's Web Radio, I'm proud to introduce and honored to have my first guest, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Al Wilson. He was uh, my company commander during Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And uh, I couldn't think of anyone more fitting to be our first guest, David. You know, I... This show is gaining momentum and meaning by the fact that um, I'm glad we started it to keep people remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Absolutely. Uh, I've even gone so far as asking folks, Desert Shield, you know, I'm looking at them like with a question mark, which is easy for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's sad. So many people have already, it was just yesterday. Absolutely. It feels that way for uh, the two of us that are on this show. Uh, Al, can you give us uh, a perspective from a uh, brand-new company commander arriving at uh, Fort Stewart and, and what it meant coming out of Germany and uh, the Cold War era and going into a hot kinetic action in such a short period? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. First of all, I'd like to thank uh, Brigadier General Dix for having me on this show uh, as he mentioned earlier, we are now lifelong friends. He's become the godfather of my children. And, you know, it all started on a lonely day at Fort Stewart, Georgia, and, <laughs> and, it's, and we're still going. So basically, uh, as Rich, well, General Dick said, I am uh, Al Wilson, retired, uh, combination of 30 years reserve and active experience. And with Desert Storm, Desert Chill, it was for me the biggest conversion of, of of my life that I think I've had. Where I, I'm a young lieutenant coming from Germany after three years, ready to fight the Cold War, ready to go to fold the gap and and just take care of business. And I get to Fort Stewart, Georgia, on July fifteenth, uh, nineteen ninety. Get make get promoted to captain on August first. We go on alert on my birthday august 2nd and about three weeks later we're sitting in saudi arabia about to you know launch into into iraq so at that point uh, took company command of the headquarters 224 support battalion four support battalion supporting the second brigade and then uh, of 24th infantry division of course and i meet this guy again this lieutenant dix who is looking for a job He's been banged up, and uh, the tanker said he needed to go hang out somewhere in the hospital somewhere, but this guy goes, I, I can lead soldiers, I'm ready to go. So long story short, he becomes my XO. And here we are, what, 30 years almost later? Absolutely. Uh, talking about this war, and it's, it's crazy. It's been, it seems like yesterday, but it's been a long time. And uh, basically that, that ship was, was monumental because our Army was, in my opinion, was ready to fight in Europe day in, day out, and win. But all of a sudden, I come to Fort Stewart, Georgia, I see desert colored vehicles, uh, join a unit that's been to the National Training Center a lot. I had never been at that at that point. I've been to, you know, Graffenbeer, Hornsfell. So all of a sudden, we're transitioning to a possible tank war in the desert. And uh, when I met then Lieutenant Dix, General Dix, you know, I think he taught me a lot about tactics and I tried to teach him a little bit about logistics, and he took that and ran with it. So Desert Storm was definitely a, a, a milestone for, for us, I think. Sir, you taught me a lot about logistics. So uh, 
I'm the logistician I am today because of you and those uh, jump BSA missions that you threw me out there on uh, all over the <laughs> deserts of uh, southern Iraq. Sir, <laughs> sir, what did you think about uh, our government sending uh, troops over in OD green tanks and armor when it was a rather sandy day? The first, not the first time, but one of the times I went to Stewart. There were there were spray painting going on, <laughs> right, right, and it, and the DOL, the Director of Logistics at Fort Stewart, someone should still be putting a medal on their on their chest because I think they painted the entire division as we were leaving, mm-hmm. and 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 to do that with with minimal notice, in my opinion, was was just phenomenal because everything was green, and like I said, when I landed at Fort Stewart and saw the desert vehicles. I had never really seen them before. Mm-hmm. I've been in Germany three years. So the the director of logistics there, all the logisticians at Fort Stewart, Georgia, were able to get as many of those vehicles painted before we before we deployed. Uh, we were also able, I think, and, and Richard may remember, I remember General Kern, who was, was our brigade commander, Paul Kern. Right. Uh, I remember receiving an Army Commendation Medal for having the first unit to be ready to deploy with all of our equipment. Mm-hmm. And what you think was routine was not routine anymore because we had to draw desert equipment, we had to draw desert gear, we had to make sure, like you said, our vehicles were painted. And it, it took a lot. And it, it and all those little decisions that I see, that I've seen grow out of that Desert Shield experience, they became Army leaders. General Dix, I mean, so many others, they became Army leaders. And I think that experience just changed the way we it changed the way we fought, but it changed the way we developed leaders in the Army. Because you had to be not just a, a, a brainy guy, you had to be a guy that could think, or a young lady or a young man as a leader that could think and, and work, you know, not outside of the box, but just forget that there was a box and make it happen. Absolutely. And, uh, and, when, and when I talk to Gerald Dix, I always think about my most, the proudest day I've ever seen when I talk about this guy on, the, on this radio show is that he sent me a picture years ago with Vice President Dick Cheney putting a medal on his neck for being instrumental in setting up the logistics in Afghanistan. And when I talked to General Dix after that, you know, he told me, then Colonel Dix, he told me that, you know, we basically did the same thing we did in in Saudi. Mm -hmm. There was no infrastructure. We had to really think and make things happen. And if we prayed that it worked, you know, thank God. But we had to make sure that... We, we developed systems that made people and allowed leaders to think and, and be flexible and, and be able to command their units. You know, I, I so, just, excuse me, Colonel. I, I was just sure. thinking about the Jody that uh, General Dix did, and, and he talked about uh, now, you know, I'm in my Army Greens. Well, everything was green. Mm-hmm. The uniform. Was, right. Were we prepared enough that they could issue desert uh, fatigues? Uh, not to everyone. Because, as I said, the, the, the rapid deployment force, in my memory, most of us were able to get those things, but it was very hard to get them, right? Mm-hmm. It was, you know, you had people sewing on uniforms and putting uniforms together in Saudi Arabia. Because a lot of people, especially guys that came later on for Germany, they came with green. Mm-hmm. Um, the 24th was, was desert. General, <laughs> General McCaffrey made sure we were, we were ready, right? Yeah. But even he, I think, had to think out of the box to make that happen. So I think right. the... When you when you look at it, we were green. Mm-hmm. We were we were ready to do something else. But the, I think what history needs to remember is that this this force was able to convert on a on a dime mm-hmm. and go over into the desert. And sure, we had a lot of logistical challenges because in in Germany with the green uniforms, you had warehouses, you had a, a supply system that had worked for almost what for over forty years. Yep. And here we go to Saudi Arabia, and we're buying. The, the blue buckets to take a bath in because we had no infrastructure. You know, we're building showers. We're, you know, we were uh, putting water purification units in place. Uh, so it was a very austere place that mm-hmm. we had no significant um, infrastructure for logistics. Sir, how much so of the, it, how much of the yeah. how much of this do you think the public knows? Yeah, I don't. You know, that's a good question. I, I don't think they. No, mm-hmm. I think if you if you think of General Pagonis's book, it told a lot. Uh, I don't think it's a lot been that's been written, and I, I do encourage General General Dixon to sit down and we we laugh about this all the time. You know, he needs to write a book. 
because he was Somebody a key else part of that. that too, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right, and you, but, but Sir David, you're right. It's not a lot been that's been written, in my opinion, about the the effort that it took mm-hmm. to convert a Cold War army to a desert nimble army, and and things just like air filters. You know, they last maybe double the time in in in, in Germany versus a day or two in the desert because yeah. of the sand. I mean, it's just simple things that I think people consider, but we never had to put into action until that time. But now again, what happens, American soldier has made us the best in the world at that as well. Mm-hmm. It's fighting in the desert, the best in the world. So it goes back to, you could take all the modernization, all the equipment, you take all of the, the, the uniforms, but it's that heart of that soldier that made that happen. Absolutely, and you deployed years later through AMC and other units, um, right. the things that you learned in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, um, how easy was it to implement those later on on successive uh, deployments? Wow. It, 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 was a, it was a lot easier the second time. Again, infrastructure was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you look at the comparison the first time, I think I called home about five times in, in nine months because you had to wait on the phone line for you know, three hours to make a 10-minute phone call, mm-hmm. right? When I went back in, in 04, you know this, went back in 04, there's a computer at my desk that I can email or right. I can pick up the phone and, and, and call home or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. So there's a big difference, you know, in how the world shifted in that in that period of time between Desert Storm and Iraqi Freedom, Enduring Freedom. Right. So, uh, and logistically, of course, I think we learned so much when it comes to preposition shifts, when it comes to uh, having equipment in certain locations where mm-hmm. you can get to it quicker instead of shipping it from Fort Stewart, Georgia to to Saudi Arabia, you have places you know have equipment in other places. Right. Um, I think the the way the the maneuvers for the the the, the combat arms teams fought it, mm-hmm. it, it developed it developed into what we could have done in in Europe. I think if that had been a World War Three, we took it to the desert and. Again, those leaders made it work. Right. Those leaders were able to, to redefine doctrine and, and make it work. So, again, it all goes back to that soldier. So a lot of the private the, general. the questions that you asked earlier, David, about the uh, O.D. Green and painting and the uniforms, you know, um, 24th Infantry Division had a war reserve that was designated for the Middle East because that was their primary mission. The problem, Correct. everybody else was facing Europe, and theirs was O.D. Green, and designed to, to fight in, you know, the RDM-4, so the folder gap, you know, right. and it's all rolling hills, green, you know, a woodland area. So when you had to shift, you really had to shift, and it took a while. So they came with what they had, and then, right. as uh, Colonel Wilson said, they got outfitted later. But what that did for today's Army is we strategically placed those war reserves around the world, as Colonel Wilson alluded to, where you have those preposition stocks now. So you can move a lot faster, fall in on those stocks, and go right into a battle position or defense and, you know, really take care of whatever threat is out there. Sir, right. were, were, were you active when uh, you went to uh, Iraq or Desert Shield? Was I active duty? Yes, sir. Oh, yes, I was. I was, okay. a, I, I was a young captain. I was promoted that August 1st, and we deployed, what, 15, 17 days later. Yeah. I, I was still active duty at the time. Okay. And when yeah, I went yeah. back, I went as a reservist, as a planner for C-Flick. Well, let me, let me and, ask. Uh, we want to do, or I want to do, another show called Left Behind. So mm-hmm. you've had the experience in both cases. You were married when you went the first time, right? Correct? Right. And then right. You, you were married when you went the second time as an AR. Right. So Same woman. <laughs> Same one. That's Thirty good. years. Be thirty-one years in May. You know, the, uh, yeah. the thing that I look at is the um, a base, a fort, is a family. Mm-hmm. Whereas right. when you deploy from being a, a reservist, uh, you got your next door neighbor. Maybe you got. There's not the camaraderie. There's not the uh, closeness of a fort or a base, um, and. You know, it's got to be your wife had to. There had to be some transitioning on your wife saying, "Okay, right. well, I had the support of the the fort when Fort Stewart or wherever you left from initially, 
But now right. what support do I have? My next door neighbor that doesn't know that Right, that doesn't really understand where where the, the neighbor's gone. Uh, and you, you're so correct. Fort Stewart, of course, we left, have family support groups in place. And those those groups have developed over the years as well. Mm-hmm. They've become much more refined and much more uh, stabilized because you have civilians working within it. You have more funding supporting those activities. But as a reservist deploying, it's a totally different ballgame because I was a, a pharmaceutical sales manager with a, with a company I was working before I retired. And basically, not only did you leave your family, you left your job, you left, you know, you had people that would, you know, I go to work today and, you know, next week I'm I'm going to Kuwait again, right? So with the family part of that, my, my wife, Nicole, who's, you know, like I said, we've been married 31 years, two kids, you know, it was a whole different dynamic because it was no, the reserves had a, a pretty good way of contacting people and and talking to people, but I lived in Kentucky. My unit headquarters was in Alabama, okay? That's where I worked out, that's where I drilled out of. So it was a little harder to make those connections. I mean, they could make phone calls, she could make phone calls, but that was a stress too, a whole different dynamic of deploying, mm-hmm. right? And and when you do that, people in the neighborhood, they, they really don't know what to expect. They don't know where you are, they, they, they you just disappeared. My, and one of the best experiences I've, I will say I had with that was I had two kids across the street from me. One of them is a Marine now. He was in the, they were in the eighth and ninth grade at the time. My son was kindergarten age, he was five years old. Every day, those kids would come and get my son and play with him in the yard because they knew I was gone. Hmm. So the, the community definitely supported us, mm-hmm. uh, but, but they didn't know what to expect. They didn't know what to support. You know, so it, it was a different dynamic when you have two kids versus no kids in deploying. And like you said, when you're on installation, that's one thing. But when you're living in, you know, I was living in Kentucky. My unit's in Birmingham. I deployed with a unit out of New Orleans. And, you know, no one knows who my wife is unless she calls that unit. Mm-hmm. So I think we've, we've come a long way with that. Absolutely. Because by the time uh, I, I went back a few days in 2012, there was a better connectivity for, you know, for service members, families, and reserve units. So the reserves have done a great job with that, but we still, I think we still got a long way to go. Well, they, you know, the reserve, I was reserve, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's no, there's no describing it unless you walk in those Mexicans, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's hard for someone that's never served to appreciate right. or understand what, and, and I, you know, I, I belittle myself about being in the reserves after uh, and not going and serving in Nam. But you know, there's a there's also a tension there that I could have been called up mm-hmm. on a moment's notice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, you know? right? And right. people again, people don't understand that, mm-hmm. and right. Nor do you expect right. them to understand it. But it it was a right. it was a means of serving. But you were willing right. and able. You know, yes, sir. Right. I don't, I, and well, I, don't, I don't know about willing, but hey. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and, and I think for for the most part, uh, David General Dix, you know, we all know all these guys that put this uniform on, we really love it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to say we love going to, we definitely don't love going to war, but we love what we do because I think if you poll the military and you ask them if they value the Constitution or the military pay, they're going to go with the Constitution any day mm-hmm. because they understand what the Constitution is about. And and I think that's another thing that's changed over over the period of time from when I joined up the private in 82 until I retired in 2013 is that we grow as soldiers and the Army's done a, a decent job of teaching us what this Constitution is about, mm-hmm. especially leadership. Absolutely. You know, because cause you learn, and once you learn, you see things differently. You know, you, you, you get the high ground now, and you understand that this is not about you having a career. It's not about you, you know, being a, a hero. It's about the Constitution. And I think I, I think our soldiers are so better educated now that they that they get that. So we, we do go through a lot of things that people don't understand or don't see, and don't understand, you know, I, I look at my my wife and I wonder, 31 years of a couple of deployments, and it's like you miss a year at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I looked at 
my son was a senior in high school, I looked at his pictures from uh, kindergarten one day, and I had never seen them. I didn't remember them because I was gone that year. So, and, and so many soldiers have, have done that so mm-hmm. many times. General Dix is one. David, Absolutely. I think you said your son's a major. I'm sure he's probably done it. Uh, and, and all our soldiers, again, should be should be thanked every time you see them. No question. Um, right. Thank you for your service, sir, by the way. And, Thank uh, you. You know, it's uh, this is what this show is all about. Is, Absolutely. Is the stories and letting people know what it's like. And your wife obviously knows what it's like. Uh, and I, again, we want to do. Uh, we want, and if somebody's listening, they they have a wife that uh, uh, has been left behind at one point or the other, or a husband, or a husband, right, or a husband. That's right. Yep. That's and right. Uh, we'd like so, to talk so- to them about doing a show. Okay, well, well, shameless plug time for me then. Can I do that real quick? Absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I, and I always say, do this. I, I just want to thank my wife because it probably helped that I was gone a lot because she she raised our kids. You know, uh, my daughter's a Harvard grad working on a PhD now. My son's at Brown University, and my my daughter Nikki, which is Richard's daughter, <laughs> is at North Carolina A&T, and you know, his wife, my wife, they they've done these things that people don't really understand. And not just our wives, there's so many, the military spouse is the strongest soldier in the army, mm-hmm. if you ask me. Absolutely. They, they, they put up with so much, and yet they continue to serve. So they, they you know, they're the, what we call the, the force multipliers, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. I mean, if without the spouse and family, and not just spouses, you know, significant, significant others, parents, brothers, sisters, it's the support that, that soldiers rally around. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, so, and that's that's increased since Desert Storm as well. I think. And and here again, it's my belief that the public has no clue. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely, no. And as Richard and I've talked, uh, you know, my opinion is the general and I've talked. I'm sorry, but uh, that my opinion is there's no larger fraternity or sorority mm-hmm. than the military, right. and you become your brothers. From here on out, your mm-hmm. sisters from here on out, and uh, right. Uh, I don't know if it's a smell that military makes a body put off, or but you just instantly recognize <laughs> a brother, you know, a brother in military, and it doesn't matter what what unit, what division, mm-hmm. what service, right? You just Correct. recognize them as being a brother or a sister. It might be your haircut yeah, sometimes. <laughs> <It> might be. <laughs> A brother from a different mother or yes, something like that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. A brother from another mother, that's yeah. right. And, and it goes so far, like, you know, General Dixie, he's met my parents before they passed away. I've met his parents. I mean, it's just, and the family just keeps extending. Mm-hmm. It just keeps extending. And, and at the end of the day, that's who's there for you, you know? Well, what is, what is your either fondest or scariest memory about uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm? Sending General Dix out on those uh, <laughs> missions he talked about—that <laughs> was probably my scariest because, you know, and it, it, as a as a young guy, I was I think I was 25 years old at the time. You know, you you always worry about. I think my scariest thing in Desert Storm was, I was my concern was chemical attacks and or getting in a situation where where we couldn't do our mission basically, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because as, as you know, we were again in a in a in, in my opinion, we were in a, a new environment. Um, there was a lot of talk of, of chemical warfare uh, with Saddam Hussein and, and the way he tried to fight. Uh, but the, the the key was, I think the the key was our technology. We owned the night, right? Um, and even then, um, as you talk about transition points, one of the things for me, think about things like GPS, right? They gave us these green boxes that were like bigger than, uh, who, like a bigger than a shoebox, right? Mm-hmm. Big, almost a GPS, right? And General Dixon would probably tell you, I, I, I didn't want to take one because I'm like, I know how to read a map. I'm good. I don't want them zeroing in on me on this technology, right? This is 1990. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to today, I can't get across town without a GPS, and I can't even see it. <laughs> I just see a little screen in my car, right? If you think about it, or on mm-hmm. my phone. So things that that scared us then were were the unknown. You know what what technology did, did they have? What chemicals they would would try to use? 
um, what the logistics train would look like going across the desert. Uh, and I think we definitely fix that. So those things were things that, 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 that I worried about. Uh, of course, I worried about the family at home. All that's on the plate. But at the end of the day, I think it, it and I, I don't want to sound redundant, but it goes back to were my soldiers going to be okay? Mm-hmm. You know, were my soldiers that were 18, 19 years old going to be okay? Mm-hmm. And and another shameless plug. So three weeks ago, I'm, I'm riding around Fort Knox and I see a sign. And it's the, I don't know if I can, I guess I can say it's the, it's the HRC command here in Fort Knox, right? Mm-hmm. And I see a sign that says, Command Sergeant Major Lenise Thorpe Noel. She's the HRC Sergeant Major, Human Resources, Human Resources Command for the Army, Sergeant Major. Mm-hmm. And when I saw the sign, I, I almost cried, but I, I, I screamed. Because going back to what we're talking about, this young lady was a private first class and she was about 19, maybe 20 years old at the time, mm-hmm. right? Now she's the command sergeant major of the Army's Human Resources Command. And when I when I look at things like that, and I look at General Dix, who was my lieutenant when I was a captain, and we have another command sergeant major, or Bryant, out at Fort Gordon, and I want to throw her name out there. These people, we were so young, mm-hmm. and now they've all become Army leaders. I mean, senior Army leaders. And when you look at that, that's why the concern for the soldier is so important. Because we allow, when I think about Sergeant Major Dorf, she was a private, it's like, you know, she was running our operations as a private because we saw the talent. General Dick was a guy, I saw the leadership ability. I saw the hunger for being a great leader. And I thank God for that discernment where I was able to see that. But that's one thing about our Army is that I will say our leadership is, to develop to a point of not just, you know, training people with memorization. We, we train people to think. And we train people, you know, not what to think, but to think. And to think out of those boxes and to, and to make things happen. So that's just how I look at it. But as far as fear, uh, I'm a God-fearing man. And I, I put my faith and trust in, in God during those situations. Mm-hmm. And I always have always said, basically, you know, God has my life in his hands. And I think a lot of our soldiers, uh, I don't want to speak for them, but a lot of our soldiers that I know have that same mentality. And we know we are people that are designed to do God's, do things, do things, and those things may not be popular, they may not be understood, but we do those things. And we and I think the faith in the Army, in whatever faith you have, I think faith is one of the things that the Army does support, regardless of, of where you're from. The one thing you said a minute ago made me feel like uh, my friendship with Moses was was true. Uh, and that is when you were talking about the GPS. I bet right. neither one of you ever saw the first Starlight Scope. Saw the first what? Starlight, Starlight Scope. Scope. Seeing in I the didn't. dark. Believe it or not, we Richard, had Richard. those. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah, we did. <laughs> Where everything wow. was green at the other end? Yeah, uh-huh. uh-huh. On the 50 right. I trusted my map, though. I trusted my map. Even though it had no, no terrain features in the desert on it, mm-hmm. I trusted my map. <laughs> hey, so uh, talk about the uh, the culture in Saudi Arabia once we hit the ground. How, wow. how was that? Okay. Within the local, yes, in uh, Saudi Arabia? Mm-hmm. That was interesting. As you know, our, our female soldiers, they, they didn't want them to drive vehicles. They had to, of course, I remember they had to wrap their, their heads up, uh, you know, obeying the law of Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing, when I, we, we did contracts, so I remember seeing a piece of place that said no women allowed. I remember that, right? right? But but one thing I do, and, and, and on the flip side of that, though, I remember, and, and you may remember this too, when some of our soldiers, female soldiers, went on a, 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 a what do you call it, like a liaison visit where some of the... Saudis invited them into their homes, and and they came back with a different perspective of, of basically how Saudi life was versus American life. And I think our soldiers learned a lot from that. There were a lot of things that that they came back and said, "Wow, the woman runs the home," you know. Mm-hmm. But then on the flip side, they're like, "But they don't want me to drive this vehicle on the street." Mm-hmm. So I think the the culturally, for what exposure we had. It was totally different for all of us because 
I think if you look at Middle East presence, it was one of the early times for us as a force to be there. Right. So we just had to, we just had to learn. We learned a lot. Mm-hmm. We learned a lot. Uh, and I just think two different worlds, the United States and a lot of countries. We, we, if you line up a lot of countries in, in the world, we are the best place in the world to live. You know, regardless of what opportunities you think you have or don't have, right. if you lay it all out, this is the this is still a land of opportunity. It's the best place in, in the world to live where you have mm-hmm. a chance to, to rise based on your own merit. Hey. And you have to work. You just, you just have to work. Sir, we got to take a quick break. Can you stay with us just for a few minutes and uh, we'll wrap up the uh, interview? Yes, sir. Cool. morning. My name is Mike Mizell. I'm a retired Army colonel and president of the Johns Creek Veterans Association. We meet in Newtown Park, and part of one of our projects is the installation of the Healing Wall, the half-scale model of the Vietnam Wall that traveled the United States. Well, it's coming to rest, and it's going to live in Johns Creek forever, the half-scale model. We're looking at a possibly a march implementation ribbon cutting ceremony and we're looking for donors and sponsors that want to help us in this great project you can donate at jcvets.org perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction if not you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com, and we'll get back to you. Thank you. And we're back on America's Web Radio, and uh, uh, this is just like being in the Army. I'm surrounded by officers. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or no, it's a good thing, and particularly when there are two officers like General Dix and Lieutenant, it's Colonel or Lieutenant Colonel? Colonel? Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, Colonel. Retired. Well, and uh, sorry, I didn't mean to demote you by any means, but... <laughs> That's another story. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you're... It's okay. <laughs> I, I was telling uh, General Dix when we were off the air, you know, uh, uh, you know, there's just something about the military. And not that there aren't a few bad apples somewhere, but, mm-hmm. you know, I've been very fortunate. I haven't met him coming into the studio. I haven't met him even when I was on active duty or on uh, reserve duty it, I, they're just good folks. Oh yeah, and they have, everybody has a love for the country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, right. If you know, we could get over so many ills, in my opinion, mm-hmm. in in D.C. If everybody felt like the, like a person that's gone through the military in some shape, form, or fashion. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, get back to the basics yeah. of selfless service. That's, right. You know, that, that's one of the keys. So. Right. Um, Colonel Wilson, um, one of the things that we talked about was our ability to uh, to recall uh, the reserves in the National Guard and get them trained and get them prepared to go. Uh, can you talk about some of the experiences um, while we were sitting in the deserts uh, 
uh, and having the uh, reserve and the National Guard fall in and how it's evolved to today's total force concept and uh, the right. things that you're doing at Fort Knox. Okay. Um, well, that's a, wow, that's a good question. Because right now, if you, if, again, if you remember Desert Storm, you remember the, 40, the 48th Brigade, Georgia mm-hmm. National Guard, right, was supposed to be the brigade to round out the 24th. You know, that was a concept we had that a brigade would come in and help the division, right? Right. So that brigade never really made it, right? right, because they had to go and train. And, again, at that time, when you have National Guard Reserves, at that time, you know, there was not a lot of training for that type of mission, just like the active Army, but mm-hmm. it was a lot. It was different because there just was not the resources put toward the reserve component. Right. And my, I myself, I joined as a private into the reserves when I came in as a private you know, it was pretty laid back. Good unit, but pretty laid back. So when you look at what happened with the 48th, and if you read about it, they they, they never got there. So the Army gave us another brigade to, to come in, basically, because they weren't trained. They weren't prepared to go. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the evolution now, when you look at Iraqi freedom, enduring freedom, what has changed is that the reserves are, in my opinion only, they're ready. Mm-hmm. They 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 they're ready because they they took that lesson learned and said okay we we got to be ready next time and and if you look at professional schooling the opportunities have increased for reservists uh, when you look at the training opportunities to be in uh, in leadership positions has re- increased in reserves uh, units that they've come become much more professional organizations not that they were not professional but they're ready to supplement active duty and now I think I think it's more of a, a one force now with the army mm-hmm. than it, it definitely is, than it was in, in 1990 91 but it's, it's one force because as I said when I deployed the first time I was active duty with 24 and when I deployed in 2004 I deployed as a reservist with a reserve headquarters that was the 377 but then I was infiltrated into 3rd army headquarters as a planner on that staff Right, and and there was no well. He's a reservist. He he not he doesn't know this. He doesn't. Know. That was okay. Al, you got this. You have to do this job. <laughs> this is your job. So it was no expectation of failure mm-hmm. at all because of the training that the, and the resources the army put behind the reserve component over those the, over that period of time. So so as I said earlier, I went from a pharmaceutical sales manager drilling on the weekends to the chief of plans for deployment redeployment in, in Kuwait overnight wow because of the army if you look at how we trained and how we were able to go to to, to um command general staff college all these different schools mm-hmm. you were prepared and i think shameless plug again i think the reserve is that that come in like that a lot of these guys are professionals in their in their own career fields you know you had lawyers you had you know engineers all these guys that come in mm-hmm. and they would also bring a different perspective from their civilian career, absolutely to what the army does all the time, and I think in 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 situations like Kuwait and you know Iraq, all that was a was a plus. Yeah, because now you have more than one way of looking at things. So uh, I think it has definitely evolved. Of course, like everything else, it it, it probably needs a little, a little work. But from ninety to two thousand and thirteen, you have a whole different force. Absolutely, because the reserves are so important right now. You were probably exposed to this, and I know the public has no clue, but the three of us can talk AR, NG, and know what we're talking mm-hmm. about. But right. AR, Army Reserve, NG, National Guard. So mm-hmm. what's the – and you have National Guard that's uh, – like I, my first – when I was uh, an, in the National Guard – it was mechanized infantry. Mm-hmm. So we learned, right. we played with the big toys like like the guys in the AR did. But what is your overview of ARNG yesterday and today? Like you said, we're better, they're better trained now than they ever were. But back then, right. when I was in, <laughs> back in the 70s, uh, there was a whole difference between AR and NGs. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I, I think now that there there really is no difference. Um, and, and just like I said, even when I went to the AMC staff, 
you, you go in as a reservist. When you walk in that door, you are Lieutenant Colonel. Yep. You walk in that door, you're a major, you're a captain. And, and again, the cooperation and communication between those organizations across the years has gotten so much clearer. And, and, and the, the goals are set forth that these National Guard Reserve guys like me, we, we were trained. And we had to be able to keep up. It was not a, a situation where, you know, when, when I go into briefs of C-Fleet Commander, he didn't ask me if I was Reserve or National Guard. Yep. He just wanted to know what he needed to know. Mm-hmm. So I think that went away. That's gone away now because of the, the cooperation that's happened between the three services. And, I'll tell and I'm you, very partial to the reserves because I'm, I'm a reserve guy, right? But at the same time, I, I have good friends that are National Guard officers, good friends that are active duty officers, and I think we can all pretty much bring the same value to the table. Everybody right. just has different, you know, different experiences. Absolutely. But when it comes to the, the core responsibilities of that, of each rank, I think we've done a, a pretty good job. Yeah, and I, I will tell you, David. While we were in Afghanistan, you know, the um, the reservists made up about ninety percent of our staff. You know, we may had uh, three active duty soldiers, and the rest of right. the uh, personnel were all reservists and National Guard. And um, you know, just like uh, Colonel Wilson alluded to, the extras that they brought to the table were invaluable. You know, I, I had a couple of uh, agricultural experts that uh, were actually doing support operations on my staff for uh, log- huge logistics operations. And uh, I was able to send them to uh, Gardez to help the farmers out with their planting season. And, you know, that was instrumental in keeping those guys from turning to the drug poppy seed and planting right. that as opposed to a, a crop that they could actually sell at the market, you know, and turn right. a profit for their family and stuff legally. Right. You mean there would have been right. a place for me with a degree in agriculture? Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Building outhouses <laughs> in the sand. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like thing with, with the contracting world. You had guys that were civilian contractors that, that did, you know, government contracts in the civilian world. Mm-hmm. And they, they fell right into the, the, the CFLIC headquarters. And they did the same thing, basically, they did in the civilian world. And they were better for it because they did it every day. So it's a lot of uh, there's a lot of coexisting elements that that have made I think have made the army better. I just think I, we're better for it. I think this is one thing that makes America, the United States, the greatest in the world. We are, we are have to be the most flexible mm-hmm. and can right. we can uh, you know push and shove and bend and turn to any situation. <laughs> Whereas, you know, nobody's ordering anybody to do this or do that when you're not in uniform. Mm-hmm. And so you bring to the table things that uh, a breadline will never be able to bring. Absolutely. That's correct. That's correct. Well, got to be right some of the time. <laughs> <laughs> you did good. <laughs> so, Al, let's talk about uh, your current uh, position at Knox okay. and what you're doing at the uh, transition center. Well, well that's funny. You know, I, I I just started a job last week, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I was officially retired, so uh, I uh, became a counselor for Soldier for Life, uh, the transition assistance program, which is another thing that even 2013, as a reservist, I wasn't required to, to do this program. Mm-hmm. And what transition assistance program does is the uh, you guys have heard of Soldier for Life, basically, mm-hmm. right? And, and what we do, I work at the virtual center, and we are counselors for those soldiers that are uh, getting ready to retire, ETS, uh, getting out of the Army involuntary or voluntarily. So what they do is they, they basically, there's a set of courses that the Army requires soldiers to take to align, to help soldiers do things like align their MOS, which is their military job, with civilian jobs. Mm-hmm. It, it helps them identify things that they can do outside of the Army when they leave. It helps them develop things like a, a budget. You know, if you know you have a soldier that's been Army five years, he's going to get out. We try to help him sort out, does he have enough money saved in case he doesn't get that job to to basically survive for the next few months once mm-hmm. he gets out of the Army, mm-hmm. right? Because once you got an Army, that paycheck stops. You move out of the, the, the barracks. You move out of housing. The other thing is one of the things I think we do that's very important. We connect them with um, how to get aligned with the VA right. for any assistance they would need as far as 
health, mental health, what have you, we, we make sure that they're enrolled in the VA system. We also look at, um, when you, when you look at this thing, so many pieces, right? But it's things that if you got out, if you were in the Army Vietnam era or, uh, even right after that stroke, you didn't have this. The Army came up with ACAP. This is like an extension of ACAP, the Army Career Alumni Program. And mm-hmm. this is, it's been transitioned to a transition assistance program. So basically, a, a soldier can call me today from Iraq. He knows he's getting out of the Army, uh, in, in nine, ten months. And we can start his process of, are you going to college when you get out? Are you going to use your GI Bill to go to school? How are you planning to function after you get out of the Army? Mm-hmm. And believe me, I think this is probably one of the best programs I've seen in the Army so far. It's, it's, it's a lot of work for the soldiers at, at points where you have to attend classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do the classes virtually on, online. You can do them uh, online or virtual. And these classes basically walk the soldier through the process of getting out of the Army. And what happens is a lot of these soldiers, they're ending up now with jobs. They have a plan of what they're going to do when they get out. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, it's, it's an awesome program. I've been affiliated with it for right at two weeks now. And it's amazing after getting out. Because, you know, I was a reservist. And it even helps reservists. As a reservist, I just went back to my job. Right. You know, I worked for Abbott Labs, and they really supported the military. Mm-hmm. Right? So I went back to work, and, and everything was fine. A lot of guys are, that are reserved... They don't have a job to go back to. Right. So we actually have these soldiers with resumes. Uh, we have them with budgets. Uh, we have them identify, you know, how much money they think they need to make. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a great program. And if you you know soldiers are required to go through this program now. Right. Every so this is an attempt to, to eradicate homelessness once those exactly. veterans hit the street. So that's right. Okay. Exactly. But to, but to have a soldier, you know, when you think about it, if, if I got out at 19, 20 years old, I, I don't think I would have had the direction of what do I want to do next? Right. You know, so it helps them channel their skills that they've learned in the Army. Or if they if their skills are online, it allows them to be able to go in and find something that they're interested in. Mm-hmm. And that the Army, if they can use, how they can use a GI Bill. Uh, it's a lot of things involved that really, I think, soldiers know about now. Uh, Congress legislated this few years ago and it, it really it really makes sense it's just a great program Colonel, so uh, i'm sorry go ahead yeah go ahead does the does the gi bill or other monies available cover tech schools uh the general is shaking his head so obviously they yes. must. okay because yes. th- yes. that is so important that Back 400 years ago, when I when I went into school, uh, you know, it, oh my God, you're going to a tech school. I mean, you just wouldn't. You went to a four year university, and and uh, that was acceptable. Whereas a tech school wouldn't. But so many of these, I I, I was just envisioning envisioning the number of guys that come out of even that other branch that floats around in boats. <laughs> Um, right, but the mechanics that come out of there that could go to a tech school and God, they'd be standing in line waiting for them. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 and 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 they, uh, my understanding, of, I think, is as all of the schools are credited, credit institution, you know, uh, GI Bill will pay for those schools, and and so many soldiers are taking advantage of that. I just. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's just awesome, you know. Let me, let me uh, put then, the shoe on the other foot. <laughs> do do all of the people that are transitioning out know about you all? What they do now, right? Army in the army, they do now. I think the Air Force Marines, if they're stationed army, they have the same similar programs mm-hmm. right now. It's, it's the entire military that's doing these programs. Yeah, it's mandatory. Yes, they know about out. us because it's a mandatory event. You yeah, you yeah. cannot leave the army without completing this program. Fantastic. And that's what really makes us special. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you have to, because, uh, frankly, you don't know what you don't know when you're getting out of the Army. You just don't know. You know, yeah. when, I, when I came off active duty, I you know, went to job interviews at a job fair, and the, the job I did not want is the one that I end up taking. <laughs> and it ended up being a career for me for 20 years. <laughs> because, you know, I went in, it's like, I want, I'm a captain, I want to be a manager, I want to, I want to lead people, and, and I go to a job fair. And the, the guys that were there asked me, and the guy that hired me goes, well, what's your, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to be a leader. I want to work for this company. He goes, okay, go see this pharmaceutical company. So I go down, and the guy goes, what do you know about pharmaceuticals? Nothing. 
said, what do you know about doctors and calling a doctor? I said, nothing. And he goes, well, you know what? You're the first guy that's been here all day that's been honest with us. We're going to move you on to the next section of the interviews. <laughs> <laughs> so, so 20 years later, I retired from Avid Labs. <laughs> wow. He said, you, you've been honest with us. You have a master's. We know you can learn. We just need people that have the integrity to go in and, and, and sell drugs to doctors. So if you think about this, right, it goes back to that soldier value and the mentors I had, mm-hmm. you know, and, and my favorite mentor, I don't know if he's out there, but Lieutenant, well, Colonel Donald Porter was my mentor, cool. and he pulled me to the side. He's mentored so many. He pulled me to the side to tell me, you know, you've got to make this happen. This is a golden opportunity, and, and you can do this. I know you're from Alabama, and, <laughs> and, you know, you like Alabama football and all that, but I can follow me. <laughs> Let me show you how to get there. And that's what I, I, I credit, you know, General Dixon and so many other leaders for, for doing that, to pull these guys to the side that they see a little potential in and say, hey, you can do this. Um, so, yeah, great programs. So one of the things that uh, that you talked about was um, when we came back from Desert Storm, Mm-hmm. When we came across the uh, parade field and you saw your family for the first time, uh, can you let the audience know what that felt like? I can't explain it. <laughs> it, you know, it's the, it's the greatest feeling in the world. It, it's, you know, you don't even, you don't feel like you've done anything special, but you feel like this is where I belong. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I'm home. And, and, and then afterwards you start learning like it took me 10, 15 years to realize what we had really done. Right. Because it was just, you know, mission, mission, mission. But when you come home, I think um, the the joy for me was that my mom who passed away two years ago, she saw me on CNN getting off the plane at Fort Stewart. And she, I said, Mom, you didn't see me. And she goes, yeah, I saw you. She said, I said, what was I doing? She said, you had a, a tag hanging from a pistol and you were trying to put it in your in your holster, right? <laughs> and I was like, that's what I was doing coming off the steps, so off the plane. So she saw me <laughs> and I said, you know, for that, for me, it was the fact that, you know, that made me realize she knew where I'd been. Mm-hmm. You know, she she saw, it was a visual for her. Right. You know, a lot like, you know, a lot, many of my relatives who were Vietnam vets, mm-hmm. they didn't get that. And, 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 and I, I pray that we keep trying to fix that for those that are remaining right. because those guys deserve much more. If I you agree. ask me, they deserve that. And a lot of them get it, you know, and I can go down the line. My father-in-law, a lot of guys, they died in their fifties because they didn't get that. Right. So I think that feeling is one that every soldier, I don't care if you deployed and sat on a chair for a year. I think every soldier de- deserves to have that feeling for a second, mm-hmm. but just because, you know, just being away. Sir, what happens to the goosebumps when you see an honor guard and they're playing the Star Spangled Banner? What happens to them? They're here forever. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, all of my son's high school football games, it's it's amazing. A lot of them, they they would have the the veterans stand up, and then you start realizing, I'm this old guy now that's a veteran. You know, you stand (laughs) up, and, and, and you just, you know, you put your hand on your heart, and it's just it's amazing it's, it's a good feeling because you really know what it means actually I like the fact now that uh, I don't know when it changed or who changed it that uh, if you are a veteran and you're at a public ceremony and they and the and there's an honor guard or the flag goes by or they do the national anthem that instead of just crossing your heart you can salute mm-hmm. and uh, yeah right I think and some, some, some people do that I've seen that you're right yeah, I think last I, night I, was a, a good example of, you know, uh, trying to educate the American and the world public on, you know, there were right. several veterans from World War II that, right. uh, you know, the greatest generation that, uh, right. you know, they even had a Tuskegee Airman. Uh, Flip the coin, right? Honorary Brigadier General McGee gave right. the, uh, the referee the coin that was tossed right. last night, you know, to lead the ceremony. And, you know, each generation has got to we've got to keep educating them David and programs right. like this right. are instrumental in telling the story right and, and, and then again another reason I think we got we have to keep educating them is here's the thing soldiers really don't want the attention they don't want the attention they mm-hmm. just they do their job most soldiers just do their job and they're just like you know I'm proud to do it 
and and I'm going to continue to live my life. But from my point of view, the soldiers, especially the enlisted soldiers in the Army, mm-hmm. they deserve every bit of it. Yep. They deserve every bit of it. Officers deserve it, too. Don't get me wrong. But for the most part, the soldiers that, anyone that, in my opinion, again, that joined the Army after 9-11, they're, they're sort of a hero to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're, there's something special about that kid. Because when I joined the Army, it was 1982. There was nobody fighting. You know, I, I grew up around a bunch of Vietnam vets that said, don't don't go to the Army. It'll never, it'll never work for you. Don't, don't go to the Army. But when I became an officer, all those guys surrounded me. They, they really, they just took care of me. And they taught me about how to be in the Army when I came home on leave. They, they would say, hey, don't do this, don't do that. And I think what, what again, back to that soldier, is that these guys... They, they just deserve, and, and they don't want you to, they don't really want you to just go overboard, but as a nation, we just got to continue to do better by our veterans, period. Yeah. Keep saying thank you. Shaking their hands. Thank you. Yeah. Keep saying thank you, right. Mm-hmm. And when you see them in need, uh, there's an organization here in Louisville, well, I think you've heard of, USA Cares. They do a lot. Mm-hmm. They just do a lot. And um, Trace Chester, I think, is, is the, the the head here in Louisville. And I'll see them every now and, the gym, every now and then at the gym, and and just the things they do for veterans and their families, those are the things that I think we really need to just keep focusing on. I agree. Before we, uh, we're going to have to wind it up here shortly, and before we do, I want to mention the fact that uh, I had the pleasure of being with with uh, General Dix and many other veterans mm-hmm. last Wednesday at the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. It's in downtown Atlanta. Right across right. the street from the state capitol, on right. in in the sloppy Floyd building, and I might add they have a pretty good uh, cafeteria down there cool. too. But <laughs> and just this is so important, and and Georgia seems to be taking a real lead mm-hmm. in uh, in right. recognizing veterans and recognizing not only Georgia but veterans. But if you've lived here ten years, I believe, uh, mm-hmm. then you're considered a Georgia veteran, mm-hmm. and. Right. Uh, if you're if you're coming to Atlanta, please put that down on your calendar. And uh, they do not supply the Kleenex. You have to bring your own Kleenex <laughs> as you're going through it and reading about our real heroes. And right. The other thing is, I want to mention the fact we played a spot for him a minute ago that that uh, Johns Creek, Georgia, is bringing the to a permanent location. It'll be in uh, Newtown Park in Johns Creek. The uh, healing wall, which mm-hmm. is a replica of the Vietnam Wall in D.C., this is right. a wall that traveled all around the country and uh, gave people an opportunity to touch and be with their loved ones one more time. And it'll be permanently in Johns Creek. And then I also want to mention Peachtree Corners, which mm-hmm. I, uh, I haven't been there, but not to, not to their uh, memorial that they have set up for veterans, and I understand that uh, it's it's quite a quite a place to go, and I do plan on maybe even this weekend I'll get over there. But uh, remember your veterans, and remember the people on active duty, and if you see a a skinny kid with a Blue, you know, I don't even think they have blue anymore. But anyway, Major, uh, my, that's my son. He probably needs a meal, so buy him a meal. No, I'm, I'm teasing about that. But if you do see somebody or you see a, and I love this, you see a proud veteran that mm-hmm. has a cap on, VFW right. or whatever it happens to be, mm-hmm. do something nice for him. It'll make you feel a whole lot better than it does him. But buy him a meal, buy his family a meal. Whatever, if you're in the airport or wherever you happen to be, because he didn't serve for himself. He served for you and our country, and that's, you know, he loves our country. We know how much they love, and that goes for women, too. I shouldn't shouldn't leave out any any women at all. Uh, Donna Rose, a beautiful example of that. Amen. So... I didn't mean to get on my soapbox, but it's my box. I can soap it down if I want. <laughs> Colonel, thank you for being on with us today. And I, right. I I hope you'll accept my invitation. I don't know about the generals, but my invitation well, to please come back again. Well, okay, I do, and I do plan on, once a Hall of Famer like uh, General Dix invites me 
to the Georgia Military Hall of Fame, I will come because I understand he's a member of that yes, Hall sir. of Fame. So again, I, I will plug my hat and say, you know, my my lieutenant who became a general of a Hall of Famer. <laughs> so I must have been okay. Well, yeah. yeah. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.